This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're finishing the story of Perseus and Medusa. You'll see why you'll want to get really good with that rearview mirror, because you might need it to behead a monster. And if your next flight needs to make an emergency landing because the wings are covered in giant monster slime, things are really not going well. For the creature this week, you'll see the perfect solution for clog gutters, dragon heads. Not only will it solve that drainage problem, but it'll probably help with resale value. The only catch? Well, you'll actually need to fight a dragon. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, episode 80B. I'm set free. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Previously on Myths and Legends, Perseus resolved to stop his mom from marrying a creep. So he inadvertently agreed to slay a monster who didn't really deserve it, Medusa. He was aided by the gods and given Hades' invisibility cap, Hermes' sandals, and a sword and shield forged on Olympus. We catch up with him floating over the sea on his way to confront the monster. Perseus glided above the Aegean Sea, though it wouldn't be called that for another generation. At first he had flown among the clouds, but soon he dove down to view his homeland as only a god could. Or Bellerophon, or Daedalus and Icarus. Hermes had given him detailed directions, but Perseus ended up not needing them. The island itself was easy to find, and stood out from all the others. The other Greek isles he passed over were green and beautiful, emeralds in a sea of sapphire. This one was jagged and desolate, with a black, yawning cave protruding from the center, like a gaping wound. As Perseus approached, he realized that the rocks he thought were sharp crags weren't that at all. They were people. On the fringes of the island and leading up to the shore, people stood like statues, all turned to stone. Each face showed a similar grimace, and despite their heroic garb, all appeared in the same cowering positions. Perseus gritted his teeth as he landed, looking up and down the numerous stone statues all around. There will be no Narnia-style transformation for these people. Even if he could bring them back to life, they'd all been outside for too long. Weather over time had worn down their appendages. Most were now missing fingers and hands. Others only had half a face. Perseus understood why. Medusa had been turned into a monster, and many men just like him had come to try to kill her. Perseus didn't blame Medusa for the scene. If someone comes to your cave trying to kill you, you do what you have to to stay alive. It wasn't Medusa's fault. It was the gods. It was always the gods. Still, Perseus knew that he had no choice. Medusa had to defend herself. Perseus had to think about his mom. If he didn't kill this monster, his mom would be forced into marriage with another monster. With a deep breath, Perseus put on the helmet of Hades. He better get this over with. He formed his plan the moment he saw the reflective bronze shield that Hermes had given him. He wouldn't look at anything besides the shield while he was in the darkness of the cave. He would see only reflections. He didn't know if that would save him from Medusa's petrifying gaze, but it was a start. The place was foul and smelled of rotting flesh. Off behind him, somewhere in the deep, he could hear the sounds of snakes writhing and hissing, coiling against themselves within the shadows. Perseus backed into the cave steadily, torchlight glinting off the bronze shield. A stairway trailed off to the right down into the darkness. In addition to three half-sisters in desperate need of some dental work, 
Medusa had two other sisters. They, too, were Gorgons, and they, too, were not born monsters, but had become such when they stood with Medusa after the attack from Poseidon. They would not abandon their mortal sister to the whim of the gods, so they'd been swept up in it, too. In the end, the three sisters were transformed into monsters right there in the city square. As their original hair fell out, snakes grew into place from their scalps. Their bottom teeth expanded, turning into boar-like tusks. Their skin stretched and tore as golden wings ripped through their back. Uriah, one of the sisters, bellowed and looked at the crowd, and everyone who met her gaze turned to stone. The stone stared at the eyes and blossomed outward, freezing the onlooker in the exact position they were in the moment they locked eyes. Medusa covered her own face and, using her wings for the first time, took flight. Her sisters, seeing her shoot into the air, away from the collateral damage, followed suit. From the air, Medusa searched and found the one being she wanted to turn to stone, Athena, for transforming her into this monster. But the goddess met Medusa's gaze and smirked. Medusa was powerless against the Olympians. The three sisters fled to the island of Sarpedon in the middle of Oceanus, and over the years, warriors came to hunt the monster, Medusa, oftentimes prompted by the gods. Unlike her sisters, Medusa was mortal, so the gods sent hero after hero to the island, and, one by one, they each ended up frozen on the rocks outside. The sleeping Gorgons didn't hear Perseus making his way inside. He hovered silently, inches above the ground, thanks to his borrowed winged sandals. Wearing the cap of Hades, he was also invisible. That's how he caught the three monster sisters unaware. The trio slept in their dark hovel, in the caves under the island. As Perseus looked on the three sisters, he swallowed hard. If he was smart about it, he would succeed, where all the other heroes had failed. Deftly maneuvering around the sleeping Gorgons, Perseus found Medusa. She was the smallest. Perseus took out the sword Hermes had given him. Hermes had assured him that it could cut through Medusa's scaly neck. But magical sword, flying boots, and invisibility cap aside, I think we all just need to stop and understand how incredibly difficult the next action would be for Perseus. He needs to look in that polished shield and strike backwards, hard enough to behead Medusa in one stroke, because the last thing you want is a partially beheaded Gorgon. Also, he had to do so quietly, because her sisters were sleeping right next to her, her immortal sisters, who had the exact same powers as Medusa. It was then that he realized just how dangerous this was. Stealing himself, Perseus lined up his sword according to his shield's reflection, turning as far as he could without facing her and becoming stone himself. Sweat beaded on his hands, and he took a deep breath and struck downward. The head of Medusa rolled with a thud on the ground. The snakes in her hair hissed slightly, trying to raise the alarm, before they, too, died. It was done. Medusa was dead. Perseus refused to breathe as he glanced around at the other two sisters and the reflection of the shield. The water below where Medusa had been sleeping had muffled the ringing of the sword hitting the stone, and, against all odds, Perseus had done it. He relaxed and exhaled for the first time in nearly a minute. That was when he heard it. Was that... Was that a whinny? Medusa's headless body, splayed across the rocks, began pulsing and contracting violently. It was also whinnying. What was going on? That's when Perseus saw it. A white snout popped from Medusa's neck hole and snorted. Perseus jumped. He was so confused, so curious, that he didn't realize that whatever this was, 
was making a ton of noise, and the other two Gorgons were now starting to stir. I can't really imagine a much more chaotic or disturbing sight than a full-grown horse being born from someone's severed neck hole, but that's what Perseus witnessed. The white horse grunted and snorted and whinnied until its two front legs were free, and then it clambered against the rocks to pull the other two legs out. Perseus could see that the horse was not a normal horse, obviously, but also because it had wings. Pegasus, the famous flying horse from Greek mythology, had been born. Perseus was in awe of this iconic mythological creature, but that moment was cut short by the screams of Medusa's two sisters, who had woken up to the unexpected horse birth out of their sister's corpse. While there are probably worse things to wake up to, none of them really come to mind right now. They shrieked, and Pegasus reared and flapped his wings. Lifting himself up into the air, the pair swiped at the creature, trying to catch him, but the horse nimbly darted around the cave, just out of reach. Rays of sunlight on the far end of the cave caught his eye, and he beat his majestic wings, nearing the light with every flap. Everywhere he touched down, a spring bubbled from the rocks. Finally, Pegasus flew out into the daylight for the first time in his life and took to the sky. The Gorgons rushed behind him, too slow to see him disappear into the open sky and become a speck of white, fading into the horizon. Perseus remained inside, tucked into a crag in the cave, weighing his options for escape. He was still invisible, still inaudible, yet very much not in the clear until he could duck out of the cave. The sisters had rushed away after Pegasus, so Perseus scanned the cave for alternate routes out, still using the shield as a mirror. Then he saw it. Medusa's head. It was still lying next to the body, and the Gorgon sisters were now hurrying back inside. He had approximately 10 seconds before they would return to their sister's body and, undoubtedly, collect the head themselves. Without hesitation, Perseus swooped down from his hiding place and snatched the head from the ground. Unfortunately, he was too late. And while the sisters didn't see Perseus, remember he was still invisible, they did see Medusa's head hovering in the darkness. In the reflection of the shield, Perseus knew the sisters saw him. Now, his only goal was getting out of this cave alive. Perseus flew as high as the cave would allow, but the Gorgons were smart. One flew up and covered the top part of the cave, while the other sister remained down below. Perseus gripped the head, raised the shield so he could see it, and made a break for it. Remember that he's doing all of this in reverse, because one wrong look at either of the Gorgons would turn him to stone. He knew his best shot would be in the middle, between the sisters, and he dove for it. Perseus had no way of seeing the top sister's tail in time as it swung from above, hitting him square in the back. He fell hard, crashing into the stone statues all around the cave. It wasn't like an action movie where someone throws Dwayne Johnson into a wall and the wall breaks. Perseus, for all of his sneak attack bonuses, was just a normal person with normal person bones. He staggered to his feet. He had a massive gash in his back and it hurt just to breathe. And the sisters were already swooping straight toward him. He leapt into the air at just the right moment and the sandals lifted him in flight. He didn't need to look at his shield anymore. The sisters were now behind him. He could smell the air becoming less foul, see the light growing up ahead. But he could also hear the Gorgons screeching behind him. Still, he knew he would make it. He shot off into the sky, into safety, at last. The Gorgons stood on the rocky shore, surrounded by the statues of the men and women who had come to kill their sister. And they wailed. Not because Perseus had gotten away, not because they had been defeated, but because their little sister, 
the one they had remained by, even knowing the consequences of defying the gods, was dead. Even on an island at the edge of the gnome world, people had come trying to kill the monster, but they had remained by her and protected her, knowing that she wasn't the monster. She was only a young woman who had been caught up in a cruelty beyond anyone's comprehension. Now, she was dead. And by her killer's power, they knew the Olympians were responsible. They watched her head disappear into the sky, and they wept. Medusa deserved to be buried with honor, not to have her head be some trophy for a coward who couldn't even face them. What's a good chaser for a monster fight? Another monster fight. We'll see Perseus get into even more trouble, but that will be right after this. By now, Perseus was feeling pretty good. He had the wind at his back, winged sandals, and a bag of holding with a drippy Medusa head in it. What was done was done. Now he just had to go home and save mom. Unfortunately, this was before GPS and also reliable maps. And so Perseus, enjoying himself a little bit too much in the sky with his flying sandals, got a little bit lost. And by a little bit, I mean a lot bit. Somehow, he ended up over the sands of Libya, and without realizing it, was dripping Medusa's blood from his bag as he flew. The problem? As soon as the droplets hit the sand, her blood turned into poisonous snakes, which is why, according to Ovid, Libya has poisonous snakes. Perseus continued on, eventually reaching the airspace of Ethiopia. And he looked out on the ocean, and there, chained to a rock, was a woman. And she was naked. Perseus knew he should really be getting home with Medusa's head to help his mom's marriage situation, but he figured he should probably check out this situation too. How you doing? Perseus greeted, hovering before the woman named Andromeda. She was self-conscious. No matter how confident you are with your body, I can't imagine being chained to a rock as a snack for a sea monster is a look anyone's really going for. Perseus could see that she wasn't thrilled about him seeing her like this, so he continued to hit on her. Chained to a rock, I see. The only chains that should bind you are love knots, not shackles, he said with a smirk. Andromeda grimaced at that line that I took verbatim from the Roman poet Ovid. So, what did you do to end up here? Perseus tried. Seriously? Andromeda said. No cloak? No nothing? You're not going to help me out at all? Perseus was about to explain himself, but she continued. She said her name was Andromeda, from a region called Ethiopia. We all love our kids and think really highly of them, but Andromeda's mother took it one disastrous step further, and had announced that her daughter was more beautiful than all the Nereids, the daughters of Nereus, the old man of the sea. The Nereids weren't powerful enough to demand a woman be sacrificed to soothe their bruised egos, but the husband of one of the Nereids, a guy named Poseidon, had a bit more pull with the evil monsters of the deep. The next day, a creature known as Cetus began ravaging the coasts of what we now call the Red Sea. Now, Cetus looks like the ugliest possible combination of a seal, a whale, and a shizu. Still, it was dangerous, and it was devastating both the coastal cities and any ships that passed through. Andromeda's parents sought the advice of an oracle who told them, first, don't say stupid stuff, and second, the only way to appease Poseidon, who is an uncharacteristically huge jerk in the story, was to feed Andromeda to the monster. Marry me and go free? Perseus offered. What? Andromeda asked. Yeah, I'll kill the monster, and when I do, will you marry me? 
Look, I've got flying sandals from Hermes, an invisibility cat from Hades, a sword and shield made by Hippistus himself, and Perseus tapped on the bag holding Medusa's severed head, a little insurance policy. So, marry me? Andromeda's face said it all. She could not believe this guy was serious. Fine, I'll marry you if you kill the sea monster. But this isn't what you think, Andromeda began. But Perseus had already stopped listening at, yes, I'll marry you. Perseus was already gone. He had to ask the woman's parents. Sure, he was basically extorting her into marrying him, but that didn't mean he couldn't be a gentleman about it. They, unsurprisingly, said yes to marrying their daughter, and not a second too soon. As he hovered at the shoreline talking with them, the ocean began to ripple with the oncoming monster. Perseus glanced at the monster and then at the bag he had with him. He wavered a bit, but then he left it with the king. He couldn't afford to lose it, and he had a bunch of really cool magical items on loan from the gods. How hard could this be? Really hard, as it turned out. He was lucky at the start. The Cetus wasn't too smart. It saw Perseus's shadow on the water, and, like a cat seeing a laser pointer, abandoned the path toward eating Andromeda. To go and eat Perseus's shadow, Perseus could see it rising from the sea, but already had a plan. The monster surged from the open ocean, gaping mouth beginning to close around Perseus's shadow, which, while it had far fewer calories than the princess, was also much less satisfying. Perseus waited until it was completely airborne, then dove. The Cetus didn't know what was happening, until it felt its blood pouring out into the ocean. Perseus had caught it underneath its front right fin, and, speeding along courtesy of the flying sandals, ran his sword down the full length of its body. Perseus backed up and smirked. That should do it. It didn't. Thou's sledge from the inside of the monster began spewing from its body, blasting Perseus full on. The force took him off guard, and before he knew it, he was going down. The sandals, magical though they were, still needed to flap their wings to fly. As it turned out, sticky monster blood sludge was a great way to hamper magical flying sandals. And now Perseus was losing altitude. He knew that if he fell into the sea monster's territory, that would be the end. So, in his descent, he drifted over to the jagged rocks, closer to the shore. If he calculated right, then he could use a little bit of lift to jump between the rocks and stay out of the water. The initial strike did little more than to make the creature angry, and it lumbered after Perseus. The next stage of the fight was grueling. Perseus jumped between the rocks, getting in a few strikes here and there, before the sea to smash the rocks he was on. There were fewer and fewer surface options by the second. Finally, Perseus was down to one last rock. The Cetus loomed over him, savoring these final moments. As Perseus watched the monster's mouth open, revealing rows upon rows of teeth, he knew that he couldn't run away from the thing. So he shook whatever sledge he could off the sandals and rocketed into the thing's mouth, past the teeth and down its throat. The Cetus paused for a moment, confused by this strange turn of events. And it was a tense minute or so that followed. The Cetus had eaten Perseus and now turned around to eat Andromeda and it was about to gulp down the screaming princess when Perseus emerged, covered in black, grimy sludge from the large hole he had just made in the thing's back. The Cetus froze and then struggled as it fell back into the ocean. It was dead, and Andromeda was safe. Perseus sat at his wedding feast, watching as a middle-aged stranger burst through the door, 
Seeing as people usually don't kick in the doors at weddings with their teeth clenched in rage, Perseus could see that something was off. It's probably nothing, the king said, leaning over the arm of his chair and pointing a finger at the intruder. But that's Andromeda's uncle, and until you showed up, her husband-to-be. Yeah, the ancient world. Anyway, he's probably not too happy that you're marrying Andromeda. I'll go and have a chat with him. Tell him that you killed the Cetus. Maybe ask him to dial back that rage a bit and find another eligible niece. The king stepped away for a few moments and then returned. All right, so I have an update on the Uncle Phineas situation. As it turns out, he's not a fan of you. He really wants to murder you, and he's actually pulling out his javelin right now. So if you're not too busy, you're going to want to dodge that. Perseus looked up, just in time to see a javelin lodge into the table, mere inches from his chest. He casually wiped his mouth and put down his food. He didn't kill Medusa, face her sisters, and then get covered in sea monster sludge, the smell of which he would never be able to get out, just to die from some cowardly, creepy uncle who didn't do a thing to save his betrothed slash niece. Perseus pulled the javelin from the table, and Phineas bolted. Perseus had grown up hunting in the household of the king, and so he didn't waste his shot flinging the javelin away, but composed himself, watched Phineas cross the room, and then threw the javelin. Only... Perseus wasn't used to throwing javelins in rooms full of people. At that last moment, Phineas dove behind a statue, and the javelin lodged in the head of a guy named Rhodus, a guy who's apparently only famous for being impaled by a javelin. And that's when things really went sideways. When Phineas threw the first javelin at the groom at a crowded feast, everyone agreed that that was a step too far, and that Phineas should die. When Perseus threw the second javelin and actually killed someone, the wrong someone, everyone agreed that both Perseus and Phineas should die. As we covered a few weeks back in the story of Atalanta, a bunch of guys swinging swords and throwing javelins in every direction don't exactly boast precision. So there was a good bit of friendly fire. And after a few minutes, people were as mad at each other as they were at Perseus and Phineas. The scene was a bloodbath. A real bloodbath. There was so much blood that people were slipping on it and getting stabbed on the floor, thus adding to the fall hazard. I'm not going to go into every little detail of the fight, though... Ovid does. He spends over 150 lines going into all the gory details, and it is disturbingly creative. People are wrenching bolts from the doors and breaking necks with them. A guy gets stabbed in the groin. It gets rough. After several bloody minutes passed, Perseus jumped over the overturned head table to find his new wife and mother and father-in-law, crouched low, trying to avoid the chaos. Do you have it? Perseus yelled at his new father-in-law over the din. Do you have it? The pack I gave you. I need it. The king nodded, and pointed to the bag laying at the foot of his throne. On the other side of the room, Perseus instructed Andromeda and his new in-laws to look down, and to stay away, looking up only when he returned, and said it was safe. Andromeda and her parents nodded, and Perseus jumped back over the table, and sprinted to the bag, dodging swords, door bolts, and groin stabs along the way. Perseus dove and reached into the bag, until he felt the snakes. He wrenched the head of Medusa out, faced it toward the room, and looked away. The whole room glanced at Perseus, and, one by one, they became locked in place, petrified in eternal, stupid conflict. There was only one not looking at the time when Perseus held up Medusa's head. When Perseus could hear that only one remained, he faced the head toward the ground, looked across the room, and smiled. Phineas, that creepy uncle who started all of this, he was pleading with the statues to fight with him, but recoiled in horror as, one by one, he saw the fighters were stone. He saw Perseus, standing there with sword in hand, 
the Gorgon's head dangling from the other hand, and Phineas dropped his own weapons, and then dropped to his knees himself. He begged Perseus to spare him. His problem wasn't with Perseus. He was fighting for his bride-to-be, his niece. Perseus looked around the frozen room, at the blood pooling on the floor, and then back to Phineas. He told the man that he wouldn't die by Perseus's sword. No, his fate would be far worse. He would live on forever, groveling, begging for forgiveness. Generations would come and go, but he would remain here, on the floor, on his knees, weeping. That would be his curse. Perseus raised the Gorgon's head, and Phineas, on his knees and weeping, was turned to stone. With the wedding party now being significantly smaller than before, Perseus and Andromeda, the Ethiopian princess, were married in a small ceremony. Even though he had been gone a few months at this point, and his own mother's wedding was looming on the horizon, Perseus couldn't fly as a party of two, so he and Andromeda set sail for home. It took nearly another month, coming from Central Africa, but at last, Perseus arrived at his home island and was met by spear points at the dock. He had interrupted the wedding feast. Polydictes pulled Perseus into a separate room and revealed that, <laughs> yeah, he was never going to marry Hippodamia. The whole plan was to just get Perseus to leave and or die, but now that Perseus was back, it was obvious that he had failed. Now, he could go out there and sit quietly as Polydictes married his mom, or he could sit here quietly and bleed to death. It was Perseus's choice, but Perseus had other news. Actually, he had done it. He had Medusa's head. It was over there in that bag, just let me get it. But Polydictes cut him off. There was no way Perseus was going to reach into that bag. Polydictes was skeptical and motioned to the servants to bring him the sack so he could inspect it. Polydictes opened the bag and his eyes widened. He gasped. He was able to say that Perseus had done it mere seconds before he turned to stone. The armed servants behind Perseus recoiled as the king turned, but their fear was short-lived as Perseus showed them what was in the bag. Minutes later, Perseus slipped from the room and quietly found his mother and his wife at the wedding feast, telling them that they all needed to leave right now. Dipping out of the feast, they escaped back onto the Ethiopian ship before the king's stone body was discovered, and they rejoiced. They were all free. As they sailed away, Perseus asked where they should go. Danae didn't have much knowledge of the area. She had only ever lived in two places. And, of course, that piqued her son's interest. He wanted to see their ancestral home. Danae warned him that there was a prophecy about Perseus, that he would kill his grandfather, Acrisius. Perseus laughed it off. He had heard all about Acrisius and the prophecy and the attempted murder. And as much as the old king deserved it, Perseus promised he wouldn't kill his grandpa. Besides, they kind of had nowhere else to go. When they arrived at Argos, Danae's home, they were greeted with a hero's welcome by everyone except Acrisius. The old king, having heard that his grandson had successfully killed Medusa and the Cetus, had come to one inescapable conclusion, that he was next. He abandoned his position as king and fled. Frankly, Danae was happy that she wouldn't have to see her dad who had imprisoned her and then tried to kill her. 
the people declared Perseus king. And finally, everything was right in Danae's world. Over the next couple of years, they traveled around the region, visiting different kingdoms. One time, while attending a funeral in the city of Larissa, Perseus was urged to take part in funeral games. No one was surprised when his discus flew much farther than the others, overshooting the field and flying into the city. It was only later on that day that it was revealed to Perseus, Andromeda, and Danae that the discus had struck and killed a beggar. The three went to pay their respects, but on arrival, Danae staggered backwards. It wasn't a beggar. It was Acrisius, her father. Perseus begged forgiveness, but she shook her head. Everything that had led both Acrisius and Perseus to this point had been her father's doing by seeking to avoid his fate. He had caused it. The three went home to Argos, but Perseus was noticeably unsettled. He had killed his grandfather, the king, and even though it was an accident, he still felt like a murderer. The price for such was exile or death. Luckily, Danae had a solution. Perseus traded places with his cousin, Megapenthes, and became king of Tyrans. Out on a walk one day, King Perseus of Tyrans stumbled upon some fresh mushrooms, and there he founded the city of Mycenae. Perseus and Andromeda lived a long life together, and despite beginning with a bloodbath and no small degree of extortion, their marriage was a happy one, and they had seven sons and three daughters. When they finally passed, the gods placed them in the sky, among the stars, to shine and be together forever. It's really hard to overstate Perseus' role in Greek mythology. He's both literally and figuratively the grandfather of Greek heroes. And he and Andromeda are the great-grandparents to Hercules, Aeolus, Mentor, and many others. Of course, he's the inspiration for the Clash of the Titans movies. And while the Kraken belongs with Norse mythology, they weren't completely off when it comes to Pegasus. Well, at least it wasn't their fault. In late antiquity and beyond, Perseus is shown in art riding Pegasus. Also, I skimmed over some stuff for the story. Pegasus wasn't the only child Medusa had after her death. The father of Geryon, the guy with three sets of legs and three torsos connected at the waist, was born when Medusa's blood dropped into the sea. And Perseus also visited Atlas, the titan tasked with holding up the sky and turned him to stone because he was kind of mean to him. That's how the Atlas Mountains and continuity headaches for the Myths and Legends podcast were made. Also, Perseus ended up giving back all his magical stuff. When Hermes finally finished walking back from the Grey Women of the North, he got his sandals. Hades got his helmet of invisibility back and Athena took the shield and Medusa's head. She put the head on the shield. It became the Aegis. Carried by Athena and sometimes Zeus, it wouldn't turn people to stone, but it would strike fear into the hearts of anyone who saw it. Next week, we're in Scandinavian folklore, and we're talking all about trolls. Not the internet kind, but the considerably less obnoxious, murderous folklore monsters that lurk in the dark forests of the North. Hey, so thank you so much to everyone who subscribed to Fictional, our new podcast, which is basically like this one, but in the world of classic literature. The first two episodes of Fictional came out yesterday, the first is on the cursed monkey's paw, which will make you pause for a moment when someone inevitably gives you a dried and severed animal appendage as a gift. Happens all the time. The second story is a Sherlock Holmes story. Check it out. I'm really excited to finally put it out there. We've been working on it a while. If you haven't already subscribed, you can find it in Apple Podcasts by going to apple.fictional.fm 
and you can get it everywhere by searching for Fictional wherever you get your podcasts. The creature this week is the gargoyle from medieval France. Most people think of the gargoyle as the stone monsters perched on the edges of buildings, or as the cartoon from the 90s of said stone monsters coming to life in 1990s Manhattan. That, apparently, is not the case. A gargoyle is only a gargoyle when it serves as a water spout. Such sculpture that's perched on the sides of buildings but does not serve that function is called a grotesque, chimera, boss, or hunky punk. The original gargoyle was a dragon in northeastern France in the 7th century AD. It had a long neck and used to lurk in one of the banks of the Seine, changing the water flow and eating any fishermen that were stranded. As we've talked about, medieval saints also had dragon hunter tacked onto their job description. And so the people of Rouen called on St. Romanus. Unlike St. Magnus, St. Romanus didn't have bear friends that he bribed with cake. In fact, the only help he was able to find was a condemned criminal. The man went along with him before the saint thanked him for his help by pushing him out into the swamp. The criminal was bait. When the dragon barreled out from the trees, St. Romanus leapt from cover and threw a crucifix around the dragon's neck forcing the beast to become completely obedient to him. He led the monster back to Rouen, where the people had a new helpful dragon best friend. Just kidding. They tore it to pieces right there in the center of the town. Well, almost to pieces. The dragon's head and long neck couldn't be burned, beaten, or crushed. It was indestructible, so they planted it on the side of their church to both serve as a drain spout and to warn other evil spirits that they'll get a little bit of what this dragon got if they tried to mess with Rouen. Let's face it, dragon heads make everything cooler, so it's easy to understand how the visitors to the city could see the dragon's head and say that, yes, these needed to be on every stone building in the Middle Ages and beyond. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Spotify for sponsoring this episode. Every episode of Myths and Legends is now available on Spotify, and I know what you're thinking. Wait, Spotify has podcasts? Yes, your go-to place for all things music now has the world's most popular podcasts. To stream Myths and Legends on Spotify, just open up the app, tap browse, and look for us in the podcast section. Follow us and all your favorites to get new episodes in your library as soon as they drop. For more, head to spotify.com slash podcasts. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Music